Thanks, Greg. Um, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. It's good to be part of Sovereign Grace Church. It's my first time in Sioux Falls. I can, I can check South Dakota off the box of eight states that I've visited. Uh, it's a privilege to worship with you this morning. Let, let me do this. Let me just kind of give the, um, the Redemption Hill Church advertisement, and then we'll get into the preaching of God's Word, because uh, Greg had mentioned that there's several people have been asking questions a little bit more about what's going on and what it's all about. Um, I'm a native of Iowa, uh, so about 17 years ago, I moved away from Iowa, never, never thinking I'd go back. And I say that not as a dig on Iowa, I just never thought I'd go back. And so I moved to, to the Twin Cities and uh, eventually got saved. The Lord saved me when I was in the Twin Cities. met my wife in the Twin Cities, gradu- undergraduate was in the Twin Cities. So everything was kind of wrapped up in, in Minnesota. Well, when I went to seminary, um, you know, a lot of theological digging, getting into the Word and you know, rubbing shoulders with professors and other students. It was, it was a wonderful experience at a seminary in North Carolina. And it was there where I really began to understand the mission of God. And some really clear theological convictions came into play, which is this. God is on mission to redeem his people through Jesus Christ. It's the message of the Bible. And now it's the mission of the church. And the way that God does that is primarily through church planting. There are other means we go out and evangelize, and, and there are other ways in which we can share the gospel. But it's, it's, the, it's the raising up of fellowships, whether it's in places in the Middle East or here in Sioux Falls or in Des Moines, Iowa, where the advancement of the gospel goes forth. And so it, it was that conviction in seminary that has led me to today and to the years ahead. And it was that theological conviction where I think the Lord was kind of like, okay, do you really believe this? Do you believe this? Okay, will you do it? And so two years ago, I had that wrestling with the Lord and through an extended time of prayer and fasting. I'll share uh, just two stories, um, and then I'll move move on. Um, A couple ways the Lord made it clear that we were going to plant, specifically in Des Moines, was one through my wife. Uh, my wife is Minnesotan through and through. Relationships, the, yeah, uh, the Yabetchas and the whole nine yards, right? Um, and when I initially broached the topic of church planning, it was all good. She knew where I stood on that. She realized she probably married a church planner. Uh, but Iowa was not on her radar. Like, can we just plant, you know, like Rochester, Minnesota, or Duluth? Like, like look, we got a border around Minnesota. It's like, we gotta, can we stay in here, you know? And I realized, I, if you've ever met my wife, she's like a lawyer. She was going to go to law school before she got pregnant. Uh, there's, no, there's no debating her. Uh, I'll lose. I have lost. Um, but I realized I was just going to commit it to prayer. And so one day, I remember walking around this lake by our church office and just praying to the Lord, Lord, you've got to be the one to change her heart on this, because I know I can't do it. And this is the way that I just felt like God was calling me to, to lead my wife. And then two weeks later, we're sitting on the couch, kids were in bed. She's like, you know, she kind of opened the door like this much. I'd, I'd, I'd be willing to visit Des Moines. And I'm thinking to myself in my head, I'm like, oh, it's open. Oh. But, you know, don't want don't to slam the door down. You want to gently, okay, let's check this thing out. So we visited, and I remember the moment we were going from Des Moines to uh, back to the Twin Cities, but between Des Moines and uh, Ames, Iowa. I remember her saying, you know, 
I can see us raising a family here. I can see us doing mission here. And that's where I knew the Lord was calling us to Des Moines. And that was about a year and a half ago um, from today. And so uh, the other story that I'll share, um, or just a confirmation, was God's kindness um, to me and to my wife and, and really confirmation again to the church. Right before I'm about to tell the church at a family meeting about what's going on, that I'm going to be coming off staff and I'm going to go plant a church in Des Moines, um, I realized there was a family in our church who was originally from Des Moines. And um, they still had family there. And so I, I grabbed them between the church service and the family meeting. And I just said, I just wanted them to be there because I wanted them to tell their family and their family could tell other people, you know. And I grabbed them. I'm like, hey, you're going to be, it's Erica and Rob Danielson. You may know them if you're familiar with Sovereign Grace Church in the Twin Cities. And I grabbed Rob and I said, hey, um, I think you want to stay for the family meeting. And they're like, ah, we can't. We got lunch plans. I'm like, I think you really want to stay for the family meeting. He's like, why? I'm like, I got two words, church planning. And he's intrigued. He's like, where? Maybe Iowa. And then he said, you? I can't tell you yet. And so I walk away. I go back into the sanctuary, to the auditorium. And I'm talking with one of the other pastors on staff, John Hansel. And here come the Danielsons traipsing in. And they stayed. And Rob and Erica approached me. And they said, we haven't told anyone this yet except for our, our huddle. But... Uh, Rob took a job in Des Moines, and we're relocating to Des Moines. And Erica, his wife, said, and I thought about maybe would you ever consider planning a church in Des Moines. This is like right before I'm about to tell the church about what's going on. And again, God's kindness, his fingerprints all over this thing, and it's been amazing. Um, so I'll end the advertisement there and the stories there. But if you do have more questions about Redemption Hill Church, uh, we can go to redemptionhilldsm.org. There's a link there that allows you to pray. So if you just want to get prayer updates, I don't spam anyone. Just give out one or two prayer updates a month. Um, that's on the website, along with uh, an opportunity to give, along with, um, if you, if, as Greg was saying earlier, God's laying in your heart to come join the mission in Des Moines. There's an opportunity on the website to, to click and fill out some information, and I get back to you and kind of explore that and pray with you about that. So uh, so that end of advertisement, but uh, as a segue into today's message, let me share the, let me share the uh, mission statement of Redemption Hill Church. Redemption Hill Church exists to glorify God by making disciples who delight in and declare God's loving plan of redemption to the Des Moines Metro. Now, there's a lot that can be unpacked f- from the mission statement. But for this morning, I want to focus on the first clause of the mission statement. Redemption Hill Church exists to glorify God. In the Redemption Hill Church mission statement, there's a practical outworking of what it looks like to glorify God with our lives. Specifically, we want to glorify God by making disciples who delight in and display God's loving plan of redemption to the people around us. It's like you're here declaring and displaying the gospel in Sioux Falls. We want to do that in Des Moines. But as I pondered the mission statement a little bit more this last week, I realized that glorifying God by what we do has a really deep foundation. It's foundational for our doing. Before we do something to the glory of God, we need to be captured by the glory of God. 
So while I will end this sermon with a call to be sent out by God to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ, I'm going to spend the majority of our time stirring up our affections this morning for the glory of God. So those are my intentions about what's coming up. So let me, let me pray and then let's just dive right into today's sermon. And so Father, my goal this morning, as I said, is to stir our affections for Jesus. The glory of God in the face of your Son, Jesus Christ. So help me to get out of the way of your word and Holy Spirit breathe upon the text. Breathe the text into our heart. Stir our affections to be more in love with you, more in love with our Savior. We want to make much of Jesus this morning. Because it's when we are stirred in our affections, when we want to make much of Jesus, that we go out and display and declare God's loving plan of redemption to Sioux Falls, to the Des Moines Metro, to um, Emmaus Road Kids, wherever that may be. So Holy Spirit, come have your way, work in our hearts, in our lives, in these moments, I pray in Jesus' name. Series of questions. Why does Emmaus Road Church desire to be a part of a denomination which plants churches in places like Sioux Falls and Des Moines? Why is Emmaus Road Church planted right here in Sioux Falls, South Dakota? Why does Sovereign Grace Church, church I'm a pastor at, have an eye on to share the gospel not only in our community but all around the world? Your gospel advancement in those questions, right? There's several answers we could apply to these questions, but here's one that I find helpful. We desire all of this because we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And as a result, we respond to what we behold. Just think about anything in life. You behold something, you end up responding to it. So what does that mean with our relationship with God? But what happens when what we behold becomes dim? Um, What happens when our affections begin to shift from the living and holy God of the universe to something else. It happens to me. When our affections change our shift, when you're no longer captured by the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, as I've said, how you respond will change. How you think about the mission of God changes. Let's be honest, we all go through it in life. Um, There are moments in our life when our view of God becomes dim, becomes small. Because of sin, complacency, indifference, we fight temptation to replace God with uh, these chintzy treacons that we get in an antique store. My life, my wife loves antique stores. I don't get it. And we got this hat, this wicker hat. And the only reason why I bought it, it's got a Chicago Cubs logo on it. And it's got no purpose. It just floats around the house. And we replace God with things like that. No meaning. No purpose. We don't even have any affection for it. So my goal this morning is very simple. I want to stir up your affections to behold the glory of God from Isaiah 6. 
And as we read and ponder Isaiah 6, verses 1 to 8, I want you to consider these two questions. I want you to ask yourself these two questions this morning. Here's the first one. Am I beholding or giving glory to something or someone other than the holy God of the universe? Right? Am I beholding God or am I beholding something else in life? Could be a relationship. Could be that sin. Like I said, it could be indifference, complacency, right? First question. Second one. How am I responding to the holy God of the universe? How you answer the first question will influence how you answer the second question. The reality is this. Churches will not get planted. Missionaries will not be sent. Neighbors will not hear the gospel unless we are continually captured, awestruck, viscerally moved by the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. To say it differently, Christians must be, must be about someone bigger than him or herself. Must be about God. Isaiah responded to someone bigger than himself. We read in Isaiah 6 that Isaiah's response to God happened because he was captured by his glory. Isaiah's response wasn't trivial, it wasn't out of duty, but it happened because of a more clear understanding of the majesty of God, coupled with a deep sense of his own sin and depravity. We read in Isaiah 6, this prophet coming to terms with a confluence of truths, which radically changed his life forever. And as a result, there was only one appropriate response from Isaiah, complete surrender to a holy God. So I invite you to read today's text with me, Isaiah 6, verses 1 to 8. Let's hear from God's word. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple, Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to the other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I'm lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me provide you with some context about the importance of Isaiah 6 in the book of Isaiah. One commentator says this about this magnificent chapter. 
chapter 6 towers like a majestic peak over the surrounding terrain and is clearly of central importance for the message of the book. This chapter is central because we get a glimpse of the glory of God and we see God wrecking Isaiah. He wrecks him and then sends him loose with a message for the glory of God. And oftentimes it was an a pleasant message that Isaiah was delivering. It was a message of judgment because of Jerusalem and Judah's constant disobedience and idolatry. Here are a few verses from Isaiah 3 highlighting Judah and Jerusalem's disobedience and idolatry, which shape Isaiah's proclamation to them. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 1. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply. All support of bread and all support of water. And then dropping down to verse 8. For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord. Define his glorious presence. So there's the problem. Judah and Jerusalem are hoarding glory for themselves and defying God's glorious presence. The situation does not appear to be good, and God needed someone to deliver a message about forthcoming judgment. And oh man, I'll speak for myself, how my heart can be similar to Judah in Jerusalem. However, the primary message of Isaiah isn't about how and when judgment will come. You read through Isaiah you get, a, you get that sense. But the primary message is about bringing spiritual renewal to the people of God so that God's people can be a blessing to the nations. That's what this message of judgment is supposed to do. How can you be a blessing to the nations? When you read all the way through the book of Isaiah, you see that judgment is supposed to lead to salvation. Biblical scholars don't refer to the book of Isaiah as the fifth gospel for no reason. God's aim in the book of Isaiah is to bring about a loving correction so that the souls of his people are revived. The prophetic judgment which we read about is in the remainder of Isaiah is is supposed to lead to inner transformation. What's going on right here in the heart of Sean Powers? Inner inner transformation that begins and ends with being captured by the glory of God. And in verses 1 to 8 of chapter 6, we get a picture of how inner transformation takes place. We get a picture of how inner transformation causes a person to respond. So for those here who could use inner transformation or change, these precious eight verses can wreck you, but also restore you. And then send you loose for the glory of God. Here are four headings that we can kind of follow through and track through today's text. Verses 1 to 4, we read about Isaiah's vision of God. Verse 5, we got Isaiah's confession. Verses seven and 6 and 7, Isaiah's cleansing. And verse 8 and following... Isaiah's commissioning. So let's kind of track through verse by verse. In verse 1, Isaiah provides us with some historical information. 
The date of his vision happened in the year that King Uzziah died, approximately 740 B.C. But I think Isaiah is trying to say something more in verse 1. He is less concerned and interested in telling us about historical details and more interested in telling us about the sovereign Lord. Here's part of verse 1 again. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. Isaiah, already in verse 1 of chapter 6, is making a Christological statement. And frankly, all of verses 1 to 8 is a Christological statement with neon pointing signs going to Jesus. In verse 1 of Isaiah, he is comparing an earthly dead king with an everlasting king. King Uzziah, this King Uzziah who ruled and reigned on earth is now dead and buried in the earth. But the sovereign Lord who rules and governs all things, he is high and lifted up. His reign is everlasting. Verse 1 declares that the king of the universe sits above and looks down upon earthly kings, presidents, prime ministers, governments, representatives, etc. Isaiah continues to describe this heavenly king in his temple. Here's the other half of verse 1 and following. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Can you just picture that? The train of a robe filling the temple. Above him, above the heavenly king stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. One called to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Can you just picture that? Verses 1 to 4 are majestic. It's the merging of heaven and earth with the glory of God on display. An earthly temple and a heavenly throne room come together. What Isaiah is describing for us is supposed to put us in awe. Seraphim, wings, temple, robe. Sounds like a BBC movie or documentary, you know? This is magnificent, majestic. The same king sitting on the throne in this chapter is the same king that we worshipped in song this morning. You think about that? The train of the Lord's robe fills the entire temple. There's not an inch of the floor of the temple that isn't covered by this magnificent train of his robe. In verse Two, Isaiah introduces us to the seraphim. Seraphim in the Hebrew language means burning ones. Each seraphim had six wings. We don't know everything about them, but their presence matters. Their presence tells us something about the holiness of God. They are like angelic beings whose purpose is simply to worship the Lord. And how are they worshiping? They are singing the praises of God. And their praise includes a declaration that God is holy. Because of this text, my mind went to, and we were singing some verses this morning, God is holy. The holy and sovereign God 
of the universe is the object of their affection. We're not told how many seraphim were present, but there were at least two calling to one another in verse 3, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. In verse 3 of Isaiah 6, we read of the only time in the Old Testament when an attribute of God is elevated to the third degree. Only in this place in the Old Testament is a characteristic of God mentioned three times in succession. Not that God is holy, not that he is merely holy, holy, but that he is holy, holy, holy. Now we have to ask the specific question, why this declaration? Why holy, holy, holy? We have this declaration because the holiness of God helps us to define the glory of God. The holiness of God is the manifestation of God's glory. It's the manifestation of God's glory which the seraphim were captured by. God is so holy, the seraphim can't even look at him. They have to cover their face with their wings. They even have to cover their feet with their wings. The covering of their feet might seem strange, but it should remind us of the time when Moses took off his sandals when he was in the presence of a holy God. We read about that event in Exodus 3. You might remember it. Um, Moses saw the burning bush on Mount Horeb and the bush would burn without being consumed. God was present, which meant the entire area was holy, including the ground. Moses took off his sandals out of reverence to God. The ground itself isn't holy, but the presence of the Lord made it holy. In both passages, Exodus 3 and Isaiah 6, the holiness of God indicates something very specific for us. The holiness of God means God is, in a very real sense, separated from his creation and devoted to seeking his own honor and glory. There are aspects of humanity that don't compare to God. What I'm not saying is God is deistic, completely hands off from everything that he has created. No. God's separateness, his holiness, has everything to do with sin. Sin. My sin. Your sin. A holy God can have nothing to do with man's sin. Not only does the holiness of God mean that he is completely removed from sin, but a holy God must execute judgment and wrath because of sin. Justice must be administered against sin because God is holy. And the holy God of the universe, in kindness and love, wants a relationship with his people. So instead of a distant, deistic God, God always had a plan to redeem his people. God the Son, Jesus Christ, was incarnated. He came to earth so that we could learn from him. We could refract his glory by living in holiness. But how? Now the question I've asked myself in this passage, how did Isaiah, who lived over seven centuries before the birth of Christ, approximately, become redeemed. Isaiah received a foretaste. Isaiah's confession in verse 5 and his cleansing in verses 6 and 7 describe this foretaste. Here's the confession again in verse 5. And I said, Isaiah said, Woe is me! For I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. 
for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah considers himself utterly ruined. Ruined. First, he realizes he is sinful. Second, he sees the holiness of God. Up until now, in chapter 6 of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah's sin has blinded him from the transcendence of God's glory. One commentator says it like this. As sincere as his worship has always been, Isaiah has not been a man in love. His profession of faith has been orthodox but empty, with little heart awareness of the grandeur of God. The shift in Isaiah's heart can easily apply to all of us. Are you a man or woman in love with God? Is your faith empty or are you aware of the grandeur of God? I asked my, I was sitting in Greg's porch this morning's patio drinking a cup of coffee and I put that question to myself. Am I aware? Or am I living life kind of aimlessly, mindlessly, kind of going through the motions, you know? I mean, been there, done that. But I have to remind myself. We have to remind each other. Am I aware of the grandeur of God? Up until Isaiah 6, it could be that Isaiah sincerely feared God, but what was missing was the grace of God moving upon his soul. For example, I've considered these sinful thoughts before. Sean Powers is not that bad. I am better than most people. That person's sin is not as bad as my sin. Um, simple fact that I show up to church proves that I'm not a bad person. I like God. I, Isaiah's confession in verse 5 turns these thoughts on its head. When you acknowledge your sinfulness, you've been, and you've been seen, and you've seen God's glory, you go from saying, I'm not a bad guy or a girl, to I'm a wretched sinner. You go from saying, I do a lot of good things for God, to there's nothing I could do that is good apart from the grace of God in my life. In essence, you go from saying, look at me, to look at the holy God of the universe. You go from beholding glory for yourself and giving God glory for who he is. What's important here is that recognizing your moral corruption, depravity, your sin, is a game changer because the object of your affection shifts from your sinful being to a God who is worshipped by the seraphim. Your affections turn toward a God who is completely separated from your sin, but who still provided a way for you to have a relationship with him despite your sin. Another truth about Isaiah's confession is that he has seen God with the eyes of his heart. This might seem like the obvious from reading verses 1 to 4, but consider the implications. His confession is the, is only, is the only appropriate response to his vision. His sin in light of a holy God can only bring him to one conclusion. He recognizes the sin, so what does he say? Woe is me. Woe is Sean Powers, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. I've wondered why Isaiah focused on his lips as the touch point of his sin. Why are unclean lips the problem for him and the people of Israel? Well, in general, to be unclean in the Old Testament means to be a person unfit for service to God. To have unclean lips leads to the root problem of 
is sin, namely a corrupt heart. Proverbs 4, 23 and 24 sums up well what I think Isaiah likely realized. And keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech, and put devious talk far from you. Isaiah's confession about his own crooked speech and devious talk is sincere and real. His confession is not just about his lips, but about his heart. For the first time, we read in Isaiah 6-5 that Isaiah sees that he's typical of his generation, whose faith was unthinking and glib. Their mouths were not filled with serphonic worship, but with flippant repetitions, repetitions about self-justifying excuses. But now Isaiah sees himself. Why? Because he sees God. And I think something new began to enter the heart of Isaiah. Humility. And as a result, Isaiah's heart is becoming captured by God. The scene in Isaiah 6 isn't finished. As a matter of fact, it's just getting started. Just because the holiness of God separates himself from all creation, sinful creation, does not mean God does not provide a way for sinful people to be in his presence. God, in his mercy, had a plan for Isaiah. And God used the seraphim to cleanse Isaiah. One of the seraphim uh, took a piece of coal, hot coal, from the altar and touched the mouth of Isaiah. The seraphim touched Isaiah's mouth in order to get to his heart. And what happened after the coal was placed on his lips? Again, verse 7. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Let me reframe verses 6 and 7 for you. You might read verses 6 and 7 and think, what is going on? I remember the first time I read this passage right after I got saved in my early 20s, and I'm thinking like, seraphim, coal, what are seraphim? Why is somebody putting a coal on someone's mouth? It was just bizarre to me. Uh, This kind of activity seems so far removed from our thinking. Was the last time someone touched your mouth with burning coal? Not a practice we recommend at Sovereign Grace Church. Um, I'll assume the others here don't recommend that as well. So what does God have to do with all this? This is actually a theologically rich scene. The seraph uses the tongs to grab the piece of coal. The seraph doesn't use the tongs because the coal is hot. After all, remember, seraphim means burning ones, so they have no problem touching the hot coal. The seraph uses the tongs to grab the coal. Why? Because it's holy. Remember, presence of God made it holy. It's a holy piece of coal that takes away guilt and atones for sin. When the coal is placed upon Isaiah's mouth, it doesn't hurt him, but it heals him. This is the mercy of Christ at work in Isaiah's life. When we step back and get a panoramic view of the entire Bible, we quickly discover this piece of coal symbolizes the finished work of Christ on the cross. Isaiah experienced amazing grace. Not specifically because of the coal, Because of Christ. Because God is holy and Isaiah's sin deserved wrath and judgment, Isaiah needed to be touched by the atoning word Christ. This this typological event foreshadowed the holy son of God that came to die 
on a cross to atone for all the sins of his people, offering forgiveness to those who confess. For Isaiah, the burning coal on his mouth points to the day where there no longer be a need for a temple sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins, because the greatest and final temple sacrifice will accomplish it. Here's Hebrews 9, 24 to 26 to explain. For Christ has entered, not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly. You don't have to do it over and over. As the high priest enters the holy place every year with the blood of his own, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he, Jesus, has appeared once for the end of the ages to put sin away by the sacrifice of himself. What Isaiah constantly experienced in the temple with sacrificial offerings, now with the burning coal, pointed to the atoning work of Christ on the cross. Not only is wrath removed and forgiveness granted, but the distance between God and Isaiah has been overcome. In other words, through the atonement of Christ, Isaiah has been reconciled to a holy God. And all Isaiah could do as a result, surrender. Surrender. He realized his life was not his own, but he belonged to God. This picture of the throne room of God, if this wasn't enough to put you in awe, to capture your heart, I pray the atonement of Christ would do it. Barry Webb, a commentator, says this, Isaiah is cleansed, not by his own efforts. No, it's nothing Isaiah did cleanse himself, but it's purely by the grace of God. Let me be abundantly clear about what is going on in verses 1 to 8. This passage is not merely about the calling of Isaiah to be a prophetic instrument to Israel, uh, to Judah and Jerusalem. It's about his response. It's not even about that, which we'll get to in a moment. This chapter in the entire book of Isaiah is about the triumph of grace. God's redemptive work for his chosen people to become an instrument. It's about the atonement of Christ. Because of the atonement of Christ, the guilt and burden of our sin is on Jesus. What's going on here in Isaiah 6 is 1 John 4.10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but he has loved us and sent his Son to be a propitiation for our sins. It's also Matthew 20.28. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I was thinking about this earlier, Romans 3. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The power of the cross works eschatologically backwards and forwards. The power of the cross redeems God's people for all time because it was always a part of God's sovereign and perfect plan. So I ask myself this question and I ask you, do these expressions of God's gospel glory in Isaiah 6 grip you? Do they grip you? If you describe the state of your soul spiritually dry, I hope Isaiah 6 stirs your affections for God this morning. Reread it later. Just allow it to stir you. What God has done and what he continues to do through Christ. Because there is no verse 8 
for us, for Redemption Hill Church, or Isaiah, unless we have been gripped by the gospel that we read about in Isaiah 6, verses 1 to 7. There is no verse 8. There's no need for me to plant a church in Des Moines, Iowa, unless I've been gripped by the glory of God through the face of Jesus Christ, been gripped by the gospel. I hope that by observing Isaiah's vision of God, by connecting with his confession, by becoming humbled by Christ's atoning work on the cross, that you become more captured with God himself. If that's you, then verse 8 makes a whole lot of sense as we consider the mission of God to reach people with the gospel. Last verse. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and whom shall go for us? Then I said, Isaiah said, May we say, Here I am. Send me. If you haven't seen it already, perhaps verse 8 is further proof that the fingerprints of Christ are all over this passage. The sovereign God, the Lord, refers to himself in the plural. Whom shall I I send? Who shall go for us? God referring to himself in the plural isn't unusual in the Old Testament. In Genesis 1.26, we read that God created man in his own image. And God refers to himself in the plural there. In Isaiah 6, the use of the plural further magnifies for us the atoning work of Christ in this passage symbolized by the coal. And Isaiah's response to the triune God becomes even more striking. Let me allow Charles Spurgeon to chime in. He says, I call your attention again to the fact that this is the voice of the one God. And it is also the question of the sacred trinity. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? The Father, Son, and Spirit thus question us. Shall we not therefore regard the voice Shall we not regard and respond to the triune God when he calls us? And what of Isaiah's response to the triune God? It's a life captured by the glory of the triune God. Isaiah is growing in his faith, and now he is going in faith. Does that describe Sean Powers? Does that describe you? Are you growing in your faith and going in faith because of God? God's question to Isaiah in verse 8 wasn't met with a half-hearted response. It wasn't a response that waffled at the prospect of following the will of God. It was a response of a humbled heart. A massive inner transformation took place in Isaiah's heart, which resulted in unabashed devotion. And like Isaiah, we need to listen to the voice of God. God calls on Christians to behold His glory and to declare His glory. So perhaps after reading Isaiah's vision and confession, it might be tempting to say to yourself, Pastor Sean, Isaiah saw God, right? Seraphim, burning coal, a whole scene. But I've never seen God. How could I possibly relate and respond to this? But Christian, you have seen God. You might not have seen God with the physical eyes, but you've seen God by faith with the eyes of your heart. You have seen the Son of God, which, which was illuminated to you and to your heart, by the power of the Holy Spirit through the scriptures. And proof that you have seen God is the fruit of humility which you received and caused you to confess your sins just like Isaiah. If you are captured by the glory of God because of the work that he has done in your heart and with the gospel, 
then you worship the same God as Isaiah. You worship the same God as the seraphim. God empowers you to respond. He empowers you to respond by giving us the Holy Spirit. Because when you are captured by the glory of God, we joyfully respond to the glory of God. When God asks, who is going to teach the guy or gal in the next officer cubicle, you will say, with Isaiah, here I am, send me. When God asks, who's going to share the love of my son with your neighbor? We all have neighbors. Who's going to share the gospel with them? They respond, here I am, send me. When God asks, who will teach the kids the gospel at a Maish road? When God calls you to do that, will you say, here I am, send me. When God asks, who's going to Des Moines to share his loving plan of redemption? We respond, here I am, send me. And when God asks, who's going to reach the city of Sioux Falls and the surrounding region with the gospel of Jesus Christ? I hope you all respond, here we are, (laughs) send us this local church. Um, Since I am here to only preach but to plug the church plan, I'm going to end where I began. The mission of Redemption Hill Church is to glorify God. And we respond to God by making disciples who delight in and declare God's loving plan of redemption to the Des Moines Metro. Let's pray. What a beautiful vision we read about in your word. Isaiah 6, 1 to 8 can grip us, wreck us, change us, send us loose for the advancement of the gospel. Thank you, God, that Isaiah, he was wrecked, repented, and by grace you moved upon him. You've done that with me and with many brothers and sisters in this room. We've been captured by your glory through the face of Jesus Christ. You've set us free from sin and set us loose to declare how other people could be set free from their sin and to have a hope, an eternal hope found in our Savior Jesus. It's my prayer for Redemption Hill, for Emmaus Road Church. As we continue to grow in the gospel, that we go with the gospel to our neighbors, to our co-workers, to other students in my in the class to to those who are downtrodden, those who eat earthly bread but do not know of living bread, those who drink real water in this world but do not know of living water that is found in Christ. May we take this glorious message out for our good and for the honor and glory of your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.